Romans 11, Acts 28, John 15. We've been in the book of Romans. We're in chapters 9 through 11, and we've been answering this question. What about Israel? If you've been with us, Paul started in Romans chapter 1, was very clear. You, 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 all of us, we are sinners. We're condemned to die. We don't deserve heaven. He gets to Romans chapter 3 and says, this is awesome though. Um, God has provided a way for you to be saved apart from the law. And we've seen that it's Jesus' righteousness given to us as a gift, right? Um, we've gone through chapters 1 through 8, all of this glorious, great stuff. And in the beginning of chapter 9, it's almost like a guy stands up and goes, Hey, but what about Israel? I mean, aren't they or weren't they uh, God's chosen people? Did God just unchoose them? And if he did, what does that mean for us? Can he unchoose us? That's the question. What about Israel? They missed their own Messiah. And the weird thing is that Paul's writing to these Romans. They've missed their own Messiah. And it looks like we unwashed Gentiles are just flooding into God's family while Israel, God's chosen people, seems to have fallen away. And one of the questions that Paul addresses here is, hey, is this permanent? I mean, is Israel's God's failed project? Is he done with them? Look at chapter 11, verse 11. He says then, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Have they stumbled temporarily that it's permanent? That's the question. Is this a, a, a permanent thing? That is the question that Paul is answering here in chapter 11. Well, you see his answer. Certainly not. That was Paul's answer on Thursday. If you weren't here, let me give you a a brief uh, rundown of our outline. Paul said, look, there's always been a remnant of Israel. There's always been a portion of Israel that responds to his grace, to his words. Okay. Then he talks about not only the remnant, but the rest of Israel. He says, look, the rest of Israel right now is currently rejecting God's grace. And then he begins to speak, and this is kind of where we are this morning. He's talking about now the return of Israel. He says there'll come a time when Israel as a nation will return to the richness of the grace of God. Okay, um, so that brings us to verse 13 is where we are this morning. Now you've got to remember, Paul is writing to the Romans. That's a mixed group. Uh, the church would be uh, some Jews that are the remnant and Gentiles, right, that are... Everybody's looking around and go, I don't know why God did this, but he's allowing these Gentiles into heaven. Okay? So there's this mixed group that Paul's writing to. And in verse 13, it's kind of like Paul says, okay, now let me talk specifically with you Gentiles. Now that would include, if you're a believer here, that would include most of us. Uh, There may be a few that are... uh, Messianic Jews, you, you, you grew up Jewish and you know uh, the Lord is your Savior. Okay, but most of us are going to fall into this category. So it's like Paul is, is turning to you and I, Gentile believers, and says, I need to talk with you Gentiles specifically. Look at verse 13. For I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. So Paul wants to make it clear from the get-go that he is the apostle to the Gentiles. I like the way the New Living Translation puts it. He says, I'm saying all of this especially for you Gentiles. God has appointed me as the apostle to the Gentiles. So listen up. 
He says, I lay great stress on this, according to the New Living Translation. Okay, verse 14. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh, that means my fellow Jews, if by any reason I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. Now, this is the third time, if you've noticed, that Paul has said to us, no offense, Gentiles, but one of the reasons that I preach Jesus so diligently to you, that I work so hard, one of the reasons is that my Jewish brothers will get jealous. Again, if you haven't been with us, quickest way to illustrate this, just you can try it today, give one of your children uh, a toy or something to eat, right? And they say, no thanks. And then just hand that same thing to your other child. And the first child goes, hey, wait a second, that's mine. That's the best thing since sliced bread, right? The, the idea is to provoke them to jealousy. Paul is saying, Gentiles, uh, no offense, but you are that second child. I don't love you any less, the, the Lord doesn't love you any less, but, but you're, you're the, the second child when G, uh, God offered the Messiah, Jesus, to the Jews first. And, and one of the things that he's up to is making them jealous. We saw it on Thursday. Actually, Paul worked this whole concept, this uh, human foible, I guess, if you will, uh, to his advantage. We saw it um, in Acts 19. You don't have to turn there, but you can if you want. Um, in, in the town of, of Ephesus, actually, let me back up. Every place that Paul went, if you, go, if you follow the, the book of Acts, you'll see that his MO, his uh, SOP, his standard operating procedure, he would walk into a town and go, okay, uh, where's the synagogue? And they would point in that direction. And he would camp there in the synagogue as long as they would have him. He's like, okay, these are my brethren. They know the scriptures. I can open the Old Testament and they're going to track with me. They're going to understand it. But what would happen, invariably, he would go into the synagogues. They would be preaching for a while. Everything would seem to be fine. Then he'd bring up Jesus. And suddenly they would grow hard. They would grow callous. We don't want to talk about that. Take that somewhere else. And what Paul would do is like, Okay, I'll take it somewhere else. Acts 19, in Ephesus, when his Jewish brothers became callous to the gospel, Paul set up shop in a Gentile school of philosophy called Tyrannus. It's like, okay, I'm going to go to the school of Tyrannus. So can you just see Paul in Ephesus walking out of the synagogue? And he says something like this. Okay, you guys rejected Jesus. Um, if you need me. I'll be sharing your Messiah with the Gentiles. Just saying. That's the idea. He is trying to provoke them to jealousy. Matter of fact, turn to Acts 28, and you will see uh, another example. And I, I like this one uh, related to the book of Romans because this is happening in Rome. In Acts 28, Paul has made the long journey. He finds himself in a, in a Roman house prison. He's reasoning with his fellow Jews... Um, some of, you never know, some of them actually may have already read these words as he sent the letter. Okay, the same situation is happening. He's reasoning with them and uh, the subject turns to Jesus. They, they're not too keen on the idea. And, and hear what Paul says. Um, Acts 28, I think it's the middle of verse 25. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our fathers. This is Paul speaking to those Jews saying, go to this people and say, hearing you, 
Hearing, you will hear and shall not understand. And seeing, you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears. Lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. What he's saying is, look, the Old Testament told me this was going to happen. Whenever I try to share this great, great news about our Messiah, that you're going to be closed to it. But watch, look at verse 28, Acts 28, verse 28. Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will hear it. Just saying. That's what he's doing. He's like, okay, all right, fine. I'll just take up shop and, and I'll go talk to the Gentiles. So, um, Look now, now back, turn to Romans chapter 11 again, and you'll see it. Chapter 11, verse 11, he said, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not, but through their fall, that is through my, my fellow Jews fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. See, God is intending to make Israel jealous by lavishing his love upon us. Application. Shine. Make someone jealous by enjoying the Jewish Messiah. If you're looking for uh, an, uh, an outline this morning, point number one might be this. Shine for your rival's sake. That is uh, rival in a friendly term, right? Um, a rival is one who spurs on another uh, to something greater by way of competition, if you will. Okay, And I, I think you understand the heart of this. Paul is speaking now. He's saying, look, part of what I'm trying to do is make my own countrymen jealous. So Paul is speaking of making the Jewish nation jealous, but the application should be wide open for us as well. Doesn't, you don't have to just make Jewish folks jealous. You can make everyone jealous. That's your application. First thing out of the box this morning. Make someone jealous with your joy. And again, these, this is a great time to make people jealous. Life is not so good here in America the way it, we've been used to, right? So it's a great time because what you'll find is when you're joyous, they'll go, wait a second, you lost your job too. And you have a similar situation as mine, and yet... You're so stinking happy. What's your problem? Oh, well, I'm glad you asked. Make someone jealous. Jesus said in Matthew 5, and, and some of you got the, the uh, little bookmarks that the kids made for you. Matthew 5, 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That's the same principle. Okay? So, Outline today would consist of our applications. The first one, shine for your rival. Here's number two, pray for revival. They rhyme, see that? Yeah. Wait, no pride. Oh man, okay. Verse 15, for if they, this is Romans 11, verse 15, for if they being cast away is the recon, reconciling of the world, that is, if the fact that the Jews are, have fallen away God has figured out a way to reconcile the world to himself through such uh, an event. For if they being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Paul here is hinting, and he's, uh, he's not explicit here, but he, 
he'll get there as we get uh, to the end of this chapter. He's hinting at a worldwide revival that happens when Israel finally gets it. When the Jewish people finally go, oh, Jesus is the Messiah. He says, look, if God can weave together worldwide good from the time that Israel rejected their Messiah, if he can take something as ugly as the cross and turn it into something beautiful for so many of us, if, if he can take something like that and weave worldwide good from it, from their falling away, from their blowing it, he says, wait till they get it. Wait till they finally understand. He says it will be like life from the dead. He said it in a different way back in verse 12. Look at verse 12. Now if there, that is Israel's, if Israel's fall is riches for the world, right, because we benefit from it, the, the only reason that most of the, the sorry to, to stop you here, but the only reason that most of the Gentiles all over the uh, Paul's journeys received the gospel is because the Jews rejected it first, right? Okay, for if they're being cast away is the reckoning. Oh, sorry, verse 12. Now, if their Israel's fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? Again, he's not speaking specifically to Gen or he is speaking to Gentiles. But what he's not doing is speaking explicitly as far as praying for revival. But I think to me, that's a natural application. He's saying, look, pray for Israel. Pray for them to receive Jesus, their true Messiah, as their Messiah. What he's kind of saying is, look, Gentiles, this is in your own self-interest. Look at verse 15. For if they're being cast away as the reconciling of the world to God, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Let me put it this way. Do you realize, do you know, Gentile believer, that when you pray for Israel, you are praying for yourself, for your own good. Because God says to Israel back in the Old Testament, I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse those who curse you. So our application is to pray for revival to begin in Jerusalem, in Israel. But again, I think it's safe to say our application should also be to pray for revival in general. There's been a lot of... Uh, a lot of discussion, a lot of things going on in the news about changing America. I just want to say that America, and you know this, but let me say it out loud. America will not fundamentally change by marching on Washington. Or even by something as smart and essential as standing in a ballot box. Yes, we should do that, but America will not fundamentally change by those things, but by kneeling in our homes. And abiding in Jesus. Reminds me of a quote that I heard. I wish I knew who said it so I could give him credit. Guess you'll have to think it was me. No. Um, it says, concerning revival. It says, Lord, I, I'm tempted to, to pray for revival for my community and, and for my family and a lot of other things. And I want to do that. But he says, you know what? Let me draw a circle around myself and say, Lord... Let revival begin in this circle. What would happen if everyone in this room actually prayed that every day and meant it? Revival would begin. Now, when we started Romans, many of you remember we prayed, we asked, 
Let's, let's pray for revival in our lives, in our community, in our church, in our families, in our country. You guys remember when we first introduced this book? We said, wait, well, this is the book that Martin Luther read and the Protestant Reformation began. This is a world-changing book, right? You remember how we said, hey, let's pray that God will bring revival as we read it. How many of you, don't raise your hand, are you still praying? Are you still praying for revival as we go through this book? I want to encourage you. I hope, hopefully this will be an encouragement. I truly think, and, I, and actually I'm kind of blown away a little bit. Maybe shouldn't admit it, but I'm kind of blown away at how many prayers God really has answered. If you're new here, you wouldn't know, but six months ago, there, it was a, a great place to be taught, but there was nobody actually to speak of being saved. There were not people coming into the kingdom on a daily basis. And what's happening is we're praying for revival. God is answering our prayers. Let me put it this way. I truly think that God has answered and is answering the prayers that we've lifted up. Here's the thing. He's not answering the prayers we haven't lifted up. You have not because you ask not. The, the actual um, tense of these words in this verse is to ask and keep asking. Seek and keep seeking. Knock and keep knocking. Right? You have not because you ask not. I would just encourage all of us, if you, I was going to say, if you were praying for revival and forgot, start up again. But let's, hey, just everybody pray for revival. Okay? Good. All right. Now, verse 16. It could mean a couple things here. Verse 16, for if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. Okay? Paul is, let's first explain what uh, the the first fruit is, what what he's talking about. First fruit in Old Testament terms, and and remember, again, Paul's a Jew. This would be an act of worship in an agricultural economy. Um, Kind of think of the similar idea of a tithe that we have, right? The idea is, look, all of it belongs to God. None of it would exist if it wasn't for God. But you actually give the first fruits, the, the best part of the harvest. Uh, you give him the first best part off the top, right? And that's in recognition that all of it is his, okay? Um, they also, in the Old Testament, talked about the first fruits of the bread. Um, and that's where it says lump, okay? It's talking about uh, the first fruits of the bread. And what they mean is the holy bread in the, the temple, it was prepared. Uh, there was a portion of dough that was taken. And uh, the sacred loaves were prepared from this first fruits. Okay, verse 16 again. For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so also are the branches. Now the word holy, it means deserving respect or set aside for honor. Now here's the question, who's the first fruits and who's the lump? <laughs> right? And there's a couple of different ways you can look at it, but you know what? It actually, the context, it remains the same no matter what. So um, here's, here's some possibilities. It could be that the first fruit that Paul's referring to here is the Jewish believers in the early church. Right? Uh, from uh, Jesus' disciples to uh, Acts chapter 1 and 2. It could be that the first fruits are those believers that hung out in Jerusalem. Right? Until the gospel began to spread to the Gentiles. Okay? If so, if they are the first fruits, then guess who's the lump? We are. You can call me lumpy. 
That could be it. Or it could be that he's saying the first fruits are the Jewish patriarchs. That is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And if that's the case, then the lump is uh, the Israelites, the Jewish nation in general. Right? Um, If that's the case, that would also fit the next part where it says, um, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. Because Paul's going to begin to talk about here um, the, the national symbol of Israel. It was and still is the olive tree. In the Old Testament, God referred to this Jewish nation as his own olive tree that he carefully cares for and prunes and, uh, and watches out for. So, with that in mind, that everyone who's reading this would understand the olive tree is the symbol of Israel. Look at this, verse 17. And if some of the branches, that would be of Israel... If some of the branches were broken off and you, he's speaking to Gentiles, so he's talking to us. If some of the branches of Israel were broken off and you, the Gentile, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. Do not boast against the branches, but if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. This text, probably more clearly than any other in the scriptures, to me completely and clearly forbids anti-Semitism among Christians. An anti-Semitic Christian is an oxymoron. Now, in our day and age, many Jews and evangelical Christians, I think, have a a pretty good relationship of respect and uh, mutual admiration. But to our shame, in the history of the church, many of you know it has not been so. But Paul is speaking, I think, very clearly to the Gentile believers. Here's what he's saying. Uh, Hello, the nation of Israel is the olive tree. He's saying to the Gentiles who are getting uh, too big for their britches, You're Johnny come lately in the whole plan of salvation. Says Gentiles, you were the wild olive tree. That is the olive tree that was uncared for, untended, unpruned. Says, and yes, some of the Jews have been cut off and you have been grafted in. Says, so that you get to now enjoy the same root as the remnant of Israel. In my mind, the root here must be Jesus. Because John 15, Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. And who did he speak that to? Jews, right? But he, by, uh, by the transitive property, I think it is, we also get to claim this, John 15, right? Here's what Paul's, where Paul's going. He's talking to, to us Gentiles. He says, look, you enjoy the same fatness. No lumpy jokes here. You enjoy the same fatness, that is sweetness, the sap, when you're thinking of, of, a, of a vine. You enjoy the same life-giving blessings that were once exclusively for the Jewish nation. There was a time when no Gentile had any expectation to receive the blessings that the Jews would. What Paul is saying here is, Gentiles, don't be an obnoxious wild branch on the cultured olive tree. 
Verse 18, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Now, boast. It means to glory against, to exult over, to boast oneself uh, to the other person's injury. It's basically, in this context, it's basically the Gentiles saying to the Jew, you're so dumb, you missed your Messiah. Boy, wish you were as smart as me. That kind of idea, okay? Paul is saying to the saved Gentile, okay, to you and me, don't you dare look down on the Jewish nation. Don't say to them, with your mouth or with your heart, you missed your Messiah, but we were smart enough to see him. Don't you dare talk, to, talk about them as Christ killers. The proper perspective, y'all, is that we are, all of humanity is the Christ killers. We're the ones, it was my sin that put him on the tree. See, the proper perspective is one of humility, and that's where Paul's going here. I think, have you noticed again in the last couple chapters, you notice that Paul's spoken all of these glorious things, and then in these last couple chapters, he's kind of talking as like backhanded compliments all over the place. Let's, let's take inventory here. Um, Paul has called us a foolish nation <laughs> um, that just stumbled upon the righteousness of God. He quotes Old Testament that says they're unintelligent and, and unmotivated. We weren't looking for the righteousness of God, but we found it. He says that we are a, a race that God has blessed. And one of the reasons is to move the Jews to jealousy. Paul is kind of giving us the backhanded compliments here throughout these verses. And you know what? I think he's actually doing us a, a service. Because right pride goes before a fall. He's making sure we're not, we don't have any of that. He's saving us from a great fall by humbling us. I think you'll see it as we go. Verse 18, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Paul says, look, the anti-Semitic, quote, Christian is an oxymoron. The, he says, look, hello, without Israel... Think about this. You have no Messiah. You have no salvation. Without Israel, you have no forgiveness of your sin. You have no access to God. You have no root and no access to the sap. Poor sap. Through, through the Jews, God brought the scriptures. And all of the patriarchs, all of the patriarchs are Jewish, what are we saying? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of his, right? One of, one of them. You can't sing that and be anti-Semitic. It doesn't make sense. I, can, I am one of his kids, but I hate those Jews. It doesn't make sense. Okay? Abraham was Jewish. All of the apostles were Jewish. All of the first converts were Jewish. Complete 100% of the first fruits of the church were Jewish. It was not until God told Peter in that dream to rise and eat that ham sandwich <laughs> that we Gentiles were allowed in. Up to then, we were not kosher with God. We were in quite a pickle. <sighs> Believe it or not, those groans were better than the reaction I had on the first service. <clears throat> Paul says, look, 
If you don't see these things, if you don't understand that you are just a branch that's been grafted in, a wild branch that's been grafted in, if you don't see this, you are like a branch that looks down upon, mocks the very tree that gives it life, that its life depends upon. Verse 19, you will say then, okay, this is a very stubborn arguer, I guess. You will say then, well, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. The New Living Translation reads this way. Well, Paul says, you may say, those branches were broken off to make room for me. Really. Verse 20, well said. What is Paul saying is, okay, good point. I'm glad you mentioned that. Wasn't it because of unbelief that they were broken off? And that you stand by faith? He says, do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. What does the word haughty mean? Contrary to popular culture, it does not mean a great looking person. Okay, yeah, right. Um, it means proud, it means boastful, it means thinking too much of yourself. Okay, so if you think you're a haughty, you're haughty. Okay, you got it. Romans 3.27, you remember when we were there, it said, where is boasting then? Paul has just laid out this awesome plan of salvation. It says, look, you've got to admit that you're a sinner. You've got to receive this gift as just a free gift and say, ah, there's nothing I can contribute here. And let Jesus give you his righteousness. And then he says in Romans 3.27, okay, where does that leave boasting? It's excluded. He says boasting is excluded in the plan of salvation. And he says, goes on in that verse, he says, by what law? By the law of works? No. If I can work my way into salvation, I've got plenty to boast about. He says, no, boasting is excluded, listen, by the law of faith. Paul established, in, back in chapter 3, boasting and salvation by faith are mutually exclusive. They do not go together. There are no braggarts in heaven. No one is going to say, hey, you know why I'm here? I killed a lion with my bare hands. There's going to be no bragging in heaven. How much of a drag would heaven be? If every time you turned around, it was like, hey, you want to know why I'm here? <laughs> I, I solved a Rubik's Cube in 15 seconds. No, there are no braggarts in heaven. Jesus is the only hero in heaven. No one gets into heaven without first admitting, this is the very first step, that they deserve hell. And that Jesus is their only hope of salvation. So Paul says in verse 20 to the bragging Gentile, Hello, um, wasn't it pride that kept the Pharisees from trusting in Jesus? So follow his logic. And Paul's a very logical guy. says, okay, so let me get this straight. If your argument, anti-Semitic Gentile, is that God saved us Gentiles because we're so much better than the Jews whom he cut off because of pride. <laughs> hmm. It's not the greatest argument. The smartest thing for a wild olive branch like myself to do, who has been graciously grafted into a cultured olive tree, is to keep my mouth shut and abide in the vine. Verse 22. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity but toward you, goodness. If you continue in His goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. Now, probably some alarm bells going off there. 
But, but track with me. I want to make sure you understand these words and then we'll get to that part. Paul says, look, consider. That means to dwell upon, to think about. Okay, Spend a few minutes thinking about this. these two things. The goodness of God and the severity of God. We like to remind ourselves about the goodness of God. Um, that The word means His kindness, His mercy, His graciousness. All of the stuff that He does for us that we don't deserve. Not the least of which salvation. That we get to go to heaven and, and live with the Holy God even though we've lived lives like we have. And that's the goodness of God. He says, but consider this. The severity of God. The word literally means abruptly, sharply, severely. Remember, we're in the context of a vine dresser who will not hesitate to cut off a branch if it's not producing fruit. Reminds me of the famous uh, quote in, in that book, The Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis. It's a, a, an allegory about this, this lion, Aslan, the lion, right? He represents Jesus. And Lucy asked the question, well, is he safe? And they say, oh no, he's not safe, but he's good. You get it? He is not safe, but he is good. Paul says, look, the same God who is merciful and kind and gracious to us is also, and has never stopped being, severe. And here's what he means. He will not hesitate to act quickly and decisively without apology to right that which is wrong. For you hand people. That means God is merciful. He does not want to punish us. But he is also just. And he must punish sin. God is severe. He will act quickly, decisively, without apology to right that which is wrong. And Paul says, let me remind you to the Gentile who's boasting against the Jew. Look, let me remind you, God has never taken kindly to pride and boasting. Let's see, there's the whole Lucifer thing, right? I'm going to lift myself up and I'm going to be, I'm going to be like God. I'm going to rule in the heavens just like God and it didn't end well for him. God acted severely, decisively, without apology. Scriptures say that God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. I can tell you, no matter what you've done in this room, if you are humble, if you come to Him broken, He will give you grace. But if you are proud and think, I don't need His help or anyone's help. I can, I'm good enough to get into heaven. He will resist you. Gentile, Paul says, remember that yes, He is so gracious, but He's also severe. He acts quickly and decisively. And you never know when He will act. Paul's logic here, he says, look, are you sure you want to look down on the group that He has called His chosen people? Knowing that he's not only gracious to you right now, but he is severe. And he just showed you how severe he can be with his own people. Verse 22. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. And then he says, these words you probably don't have on your refrigerator as your family memory verse. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. What does that mean? 
Is Paul now, in just a few words, erasing everything that he said in chapter 8 about the security of the believer? You remember what we learned in chapter 8? He chose you. If you're a true believer, if you've given your life to him, he chose you from the foundation of the world. He's called you. You have responded. And when you responded, he justified you, made you just as if I'd never sinned. And then it even says he's glorified you in the past tense, even though that's not our reality right now. The idea is your salvation is secure because he's in charge of it from the beginning to the end. Okay, that's what we learned in in Romans 8. So what's, what's up with this? Are we suddenly now back to walking on eggshells before a holy God? Well, this will help, I think. Look at verse 29 real quick. We're not going to get there today. But you probably want to see it right now. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That's hard to say. <laughs> right? The gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. He's not, he's, not up, he's not up there going, yeah. Yeah, I thought that was a good choice. Choosing that, that guy, but no. Okay? But next realize, and this is really important, that Paul does not speak these words to the broken sinner. To the one who cries out for mercy. Paul is speaking to the Gentile, quote, believer who looks down on God's nation, Israel. Paul is not speaking these words to anyone who says, save a wretch like me. Paul is speaking these words to the guy who says, yeah, I'll be in heaven. And I expect a mansion and a gated community to keep the riffraff out. That's who he's speaking to. I believe Paul has already firmly established the security of the true believer, okay? But I do like what Joe Foch says. He's the pastor up in Calvary, Philly. So I'm just going to steal it. But now you know who I stole it from. He says, look, you read these these verses? He says, I don't really mind them. He says, I don't want to make anyone comfortable on their way to hell. If you call yourself a Christian and you're living in fornication, you're living in adultery, if you call yourself a Christian and you have a list of people that you hate that you'll never, ever forgive, if you're comfortable in habitual sin, Joe Foch says, and I agree with him, I hope that this makes you very uncomfortable. So that you would repent and cry out to God and discover that you were saved all along. You get it? He says, look, by way of uh, outline here, look, you need to shine for your revival and be praying for revival. And this, I think, should help you. If you're you're nervous about uh, your eternal security, I want you to be nervous, but I want you to take care of it. Here's the deal. Your third point would be this, just abide for survival. Because notice in verse 22, it says, if you continue in his goodness. When I see that word goodness, I think of sap. I think of blessings that come to us, right? He's talking about abiding. And most of you, if you were with us in the book of John, you know that abiding has nothing to do with living a perfect life. How many of you remember the illustration we shared with when it came to abiding? It's like this giant world's best easy chair to abide means to sink down into to settle down into turn to john 15 
Okay, it doesn't mean to work real hard to try to make God happy. It means to just sink down into, to be attached, firmly attached to the vine. I'm not going anywhere. That's the idea. Okay, all of this talking about branches being cut off and grant, grant, grafted in it just naturally leads us, I think, to John 15. This is Jesus speaking on the night of his betrayal. The, the most important words, I believe, he saves toward the end, and this, these are among them. And Jesus, I think, says, look, your only job for survival is to abide, to continue in my goodness. Look at John 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, Jesus says, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. There might be some here. You're being pruned. Don't, don't misunderstand and think that God doesn't love you. He's desiring to bring more fruit from you. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. He says, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Now tell me, how does a branch go about bearing fruit? Jesus worked real hard. <clears throat> Popped up a fruit. No. You just abide. That is, you rest, you stay firmly attached to the vine. I want you guys to say the word abide as we go through these verses. We're in verse 4 and you guys get to start. First word. Abide in me, Jesus says, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Stop there real quick. Y'all, that's the goodness of God. Just abide in me and I will bring blessing. I will, the sweet sap will, will come through you and produce fruit just naturally. That's the goodness of God. You want to see the severity of God? Verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words Abide in you. You will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified. This is His plan. He wants to have much, it says. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So you will be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. You get it? To abide just means to stay attached to the vine, to continue to be in a spot where you just continue to receive the goodness of the sap right from the vine. Turn with me back to Romans chapter 11. Paul says, look, just continue abiding and you will be all right. If you continue to abide, you will be fine. Verse 23, Romans 11, 23. And he says, and they also, talking about the Jews now, and they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be Grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. Verse 24. For if you were cut out of the olive tree which is wild by nature and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, if God could pull that off, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? You get it? There's your answer. 
and all the more reason never to look down upon the Jews. Because Paul is saying, look, if God could take the likes of us, and some of us really were wild, right? If he could take folks that were as wild as us and graft us in, we who are not his people, he's made a people, he's made a nation, if he could do that with us and make us branches, get this in his family tree, I am thinking that for him to regraft Israel into their own tree, it's not rocket science. He can do it really easy. Okay, I want to close with this as, as we're uh, wrapping up. We, we have an outline here. Shine for your rival's sake. Uh, pray for revival. Just abide for survival. And lastly, and this will go fast, we're just going to touch on it. From verse 25, I want one of you, if you can, to quicken our arrival. Look at verse 25. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. He's talking to Gentiles. Lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until. That means there's an end time when blind, they won't be blind anymore. That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Paul says, and he's been saying this continually. Look, Israel's blindness... Um, to their obvious Messiah is part of the plan. It's what allowed us to come in, right? But it's only temporary. And when will the Jewish eyes be opened? According to verse 25, this uh, worldwide, this global revival that's uh, based from God's love being poured out uh, into the Jews will happen, according to the end of verse 25, as soon as the last appointed Gentile gets saved. You get it? That means there's an appointed number. We don't know what it is, but there's an appointed number of wild olive branches that will be grafted in. Think of it like Disney World. It's the one millionth person at the turnstile. They throw a big party. This is the idea. That there is, it could be a person here right this minute. Because everything else is ready. Everything's set. It could be that there's one person here who is an unbeliever. It's possible that you would be the, let's say, the 10 millionth person into Gentile that didn't deserve it, that's into his kingdom. The church then, according to the scriptures, will be raptured. Everything will be accelerated toward God's glorious future. What I'm saying is, if you're an unbeliever here today, do us all a favor. Get saved. (laughs) 